Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We are live every Wednesday morning from 9 to 10 Eastern, and we are then archived. So once we've done the show on Wednesdays, you can hear it. Uh, uh, usually it's, we're up in the uh, early evening, and uh, it is archived then, so you can listen to it any time. And also my new show, The Social Workers, which is on an FM station in Albany, New York, 90.9, Albany, New York, The Social Workers. That's every Thursday from 10 to 11 Eastern. This morning, I have one guest, Dr. Richard Klein. Now, before I introduce Dr. Klein, uh, I want to just kind of throw out one of these statistics. Uh, And it's kind of really alarming. Every year, now listen to this, every year at least 100,000 patients that's 100,000 patients die in American hospitals because of malpractice. Um, this is more than the number of soldiers who died in the Korea and, and, and Vietnam wars combined. And that's just those who have died in American hospitals. That's not even those who have been hurt or maimed, which Dr. Richard Klein, my guest, says is probably two or three times that number. Now, Dr. Klein obviously is a physician, a practicing physician, practiced for 40 years, so he's had a lot of, of experience. He specializes in internal medicine and infectious diseases and is an associate professor of medicine, teaches at New York Medical College, and his new book is called Surviving Your Doctors, Why the Medical System is Dangerous to Your Health and How to Get Through It Alive. Welcome to the show, Dr. Klein. Nice to have you on this morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. This is a hot topic. <laughs> Obviously. Um, actually, it's been a topic that's been around for many, many years. Um, the um, Clinton administration had talked about it years ago, and unfortunately, the response from physicians are trying to get doctor, uh, lawyers' uh, fees lowered, medical malpractice uh, fees lower, uh, medical malpractice insurance, and trying to cap uh, amounts of money awarded to victims of medical malpractice, rather than dealing with the fact that we do have 100,000 people being killed every year in hospitals, and a big portion of that is done by physicians, by errors that doctors make, and uh, it's upsetting that we don't try to do something about lowering the amount of people being maimed and harmed. Okay, so doctor, we have that statistic. It's not something that you made up or that someone else made up. We have those statistics, and probably they're um, 
underrated those statistics, right? I mean, there's probably no, more correct. people the, the less underreported is what I want to say. But why do, okay, then let's start with why do you think this is? Why do they want to, why are they kind of working at trying to get uh, uh, lawyers to um, make it so that people get less awards for malpractice rather than taking a look at why doctors get sued? What is it about doctors of the system that, makes them not want to take a look at, at what they're doing and the outcome for the, all of these, these 100,000 patients who die a year in American hospitals. Well, obviously doctors, to their minds, don't make mistakes. And if something goes wrong, they'll blame somebody else. It was the nurse's fault, it was this, or nothing happened at all. Uh, in fact, legally, when we get our medical malpractice insurance, we have to sign a waiver which states that if we tell a patient that we've harmed them, that they have the right not to defend us in court. It seems as if they want the right to defend you so that they would get away with paying less money, the insurance companies, uh, to those who are hurt. So we are legally not allowed to talk about it. And in Sweden, for example, they have a, uh, a claims court for people who are hurt by doctors, and they treat it as if it was um, an on-the-job disability, whereas people get paid for the loss of this or the loss of that. Um, doctors should be able to talk to patients and say, listen, I hurt you, and I didn't do it on purpose. It was an accident, and you deserve to be compensated for it. Uh, and there should be a compensation court that takes care of the mistakes that doctors make. Now, I don't mean that we want to encourage doctors to make mistakes, but we should be able to discuss it. And doctors should be able to have a federal um, place to send what we do wrong and how we think that it could be, um, how we could get rid of it. So are you saying that the legal system or the uh, insurance companies really have doctors' hands tied behind their backs? You're not that, allowed to say to your patient, I made a mistake? That is correct. You'll never hear a doctor say, I made a mistake. Uh, and one of the reasons is his ego, and most important, legally, if he wants to be covered by his medical malpractice, um, he, <clears throat> he cannot say anything. So we're talking about when you're getting medical care and you think it's the care is based on, on, on medical practices, it's based on legal and ego? <laughs> That's a very good way of putting it. It's legal, it's, it's ego, and... Um, and has little to do with medicine. Has nothing to do with medicine. We sh you should be protected by the hospital that you enter, and oftentimes three or 400,000 patients are not protected from getting harmed. You would think that that's the one place where you should not get harmed. But doctors make mistakes. Um, a nurse will give the or, or or a doctor will give the wrong medication. You know there there are five million patients in hospitals every year that get the wrong drug um, accident, um, and that's why you should be able to say what is that drug. Ask your doctor what medicines uh, he's going to be prescribing in the hospital, and know what medicines are you're supposed to take. So out of five million patients who are harmed every year because they're given the wrong drug about 7,000 of these people die. Um, and aside from getting the wrong drug, knowing that somebody's allergic to penicillin and they're given penicillin, other mistakes are made. About 20% of medicine doses are given in error. So that hurts a lot of people as well. So um, you're saying you have to be, and you talk about this in the book, it has, and I think this is, this is what I hear you saying now, each patient has to be put 
themselves in a position of power and choice and be responsible for their health care and put themselves on an equal basis with the doctor, not equal in terms of the medical knowledge, but just equal in terms of the responsibility for their care. Exactly. You know, years ago, people, patients would put doctors, myself included, on a pedestal. And although it's good for my ego, um, you should be an equal person uh, treating yourself uh, with your doctor's guidance. And if that doesn't sound correct, we all have to change the way we think about being with a doctor. Now, doctors do study a lot, and they've gotten where they are because they put in many years of uh, work to get that knowledge. But on the other hand, any doctor, even the best of doctors I've seen, make serious mistakes. And that's why you have to question everything, not belligerently, but be able to be on the same par. You know, we have access to Google. We have access to all of these different medical programs. Uh, We should know a little more about what's going on and a lot of older people don't want to bother with this, but your life can be a statistic, and you don't want to give up your life because of something that you could, you know, have seen or looked up. I think, Dr. Klein, that I think that is beginning to happen, and obviously the Internet has changed everything, and I had a personal experience that kind of relates to what you're saying. Um, you know, I had some kind of, nothing real serious, but something wrong with me. I went online, looked it up. I had to have a, a test, and I so I looked up the whole procedure and the test and what to expect, et cetera, and the results. And so when I went in and the physician is, tells me what's wrong and gives me the diagnosis and, and explains it to me, and then he looked at me and he said, I'm sure you've already looked this up. This is your information. And I said, yes, it does, actually. Uh, but, I mean, that's the first time I had ever had the doctor ask me that kind of a question. But patients do go in armed with a lot of information. But one thing you said is, and I think, maybe two things I want to respond to. It's really hard, no matter how smart you are, how much information you have as a patient, you're very vulnerable when it comes to your health. So sometimes you go in there armed with the information, you're bright, you're smart, you may be a professional, you may have all the same advantages that the physician did, but you are the one who's sick or potentially is going to get some kind of a diagnosis that could be frightening. It changes the playing field somewhat. Of course. It's the yeah. only field uh, It's the only uh, field where you, at some point, do not have control over your own health. Um, you should have more knowledge about it, but we depend upon other physicians. Uh, if I get sick, I have to go to a doctor. Um, I'm depending upon that person not to make a mistake, and I try to get as much knowledge beforehand. Um, oftentimes, as well, you need to have with you a, a, a somebody that's going to help protect you. Uh, if you're going into a doctor's office and the doctor says you have cancer, you won't hear anything else after that other than the words cancer. So it's good to have an advocate with you. It's good to take a tape recorder. If you're being interviewed by your physician, you may want to tape what he says so that you could listen to it later or at least have another person listen to it. Um, these are things that are very important, that you must be an advocate for yourself. If you're in the hospital, you may be sedated, and you probably need an advocate to watch over you there. That's where all the big stuff happens. That's where you get injections, and that's where procedures are done to you. Um, and unless you are alert, you should have somebody to make sure that you don't something wrong doesn't happen to you. What about when you go in and, and taking it away from having an operation, but just going in for your checkups or if you're being treated for a condition? Um, this whole I- issue, and at first I kind of balked it, but now I think it's a good idea, the, the electronic 
uh, records because you now you go, you have a primary care physician, then you have a whole lot of specialists, and you know traditionally you go in, you go from doctor to doctor, and they're you know all the information they're asking you, you know, what kind of medicine did you have, when were you treated last, and you know it's all no one can remember that even if you've written it down beforehand, it's not always that accurate. Shouldn't each physician have all the information about the medic and medic? You talk about medication and making mistakes. They have all that information about the medication you've taken, or you know, did you get an EKG at this doctor? And you don't have to repeat it again here. And, and all. Of, I mean, some patients are much better informed than others. Um, does that help resolve some of the ma- uh, the mistakes? Well, it, at least it'll keep your doctor informed. Uh, I have one patient who is like one of the best in the world. Uh, every three months, he has to come to my office, and he brings with him a list of all the doctors that he's seen between the visits, medication changes, uh, and probably we ought to give people a blueprint to fill in the blanks until we everybody gets um, um, medical records, uh, you know, that are able to be transferred from one doctor to another. And he writes down all the symptoms that bother him, and the most important ones first. For example, if somebody comes in for a sore throat and asks the doctor is leaving the patient, oh, by the way, why am I getting chest pain? You know, those questions should be up front. Um, the uh, Obama administration has uh, encouraged all physicians to go paperless, and it's a very hard thing to do, but we are in the process of doing it because each patient you see, it takes about a half an hour to get their demographics and everything into a uh, electronic system. But having access um, to electronic records is very important. There are some people that say, well, they could be put in the hands of somebody who shouldn't be having it, so I encourage people, and we. But my argument for that is, you know, uh, I my when I my investment companies is that it's all electronic, so that's all. But I still don't want you know Merrill Lynch to be writing things out in handwritten, even though people yeah, may have they, access and they could. And then uh, your credit cards and uh, so yeah, the security they, numbers the wind up in do. the wrong hands. Yeah. Well, there stuff. is some validity to that, uh, but on the other hand, um, if uh, we give out cards in my office that has. Uh, written, you know, on it that the patient should write on their medications, what they're allergic to, what diagnoses they have, and I encourage them to take that and keep it in their wallet or pocketbook um, so that if they wind up someplace, uh, it'll all be written down. Um, One of the things that patients don't understand is that if they go to a specialist and the specialist says, well, I need another opinion, and you get sent to another and then another, and then before you know it, there are three or four other doctors that your internist doesn't know about, and your primary care should know about where you've been and what you've been given um, and should be in charge like a captain of a ship. You know, A lot of patients don't do that, and that's harmful to them. Yeah, I, I think all of that, and it, as we're talking about this, eventually we're kind of in transition. When the, this stuff all becomes electronic, it'll be kind of a click of the switch, the information anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, that everybody will have access to the information, the patient, the doctors, the ver- you know, the different doctors, the primary care physician. I mean, I think that that's, that's a that's a positive that it will that's that's the way we're headed, headed. and uh, as difficult as it is, it is to instill into our machines um but as i said um it's important that doctors know what's going on it's very important um and medical records is one electric uh, electronic records is one way to to help Dr. Clyde, I want to just go on to a, a different subject because you've written about a lot of different kinds of things in your book surviving your doctors 
Um, what about, and I think this is the number one problem in our country today, and I think doctors obviously are very connected to this problem, or at least they should be, is obesity. I mean, you say in your, this, one of the statistics in your book, one out of every three Americans is morbidly exactly. obese. What are we going to do about that? And uh, I think that that's, I mean, I, I, I probably talk about it on my show with every, every guest, no matter what their discipline is, but what what can we do about that? I mean, that is a huge problem. Huge. It, it problem. is, a, and it's a problem that the, it starts with children. Um, and you know, oftentimes children go to school and they're being taught good nutrition. Uh, the school system that my children go to <clears throat> is noted for having you know no junk foods available. Uh, the food that is served is uh, you know a lot of fiber. Um, kids get used to eating good food, but the problem is if you have a chubby kid and he goes home to to parents who are like you know 300 pounds he is then given comfort foods at home and it's hard to break that cycle by educating kids is one but somehow or other we have to reach out to parents and but parents that i see are sitting they're the ones in eating you know one of these triple decker ice cream sundays um and they're much, much obese. Now, it's a problem that started in the United States, but it's spreading throughout the whole world. Now that we have McDonald's and all of these other chain fast food chains uh, going throughout the world, and it is estimated that oh, right now we're having a tremendous increase in diabetes because of obesity, it's going to spread around the world, and signs are showing that there's an increase now of uh, diabetes and other related illnesses um, it's a tough thing to do. Um, when I was on the Board of Health here in Westchester, um, I tried to have uh, educational programs that go directly to adults. Now, a lot of people don't want to be fat. You know, if uh, you woke up in the morning, you, you would want to say, I don't want to be fat and I don't want these diseases, but you don't, they don't seem to want it enough. Um, it's like I tell a patient who's smoking, I said, you know, I'm sure you've heard this a thousand times, but it's wrong to do what you're doing. Yeah, I agree with you, Doc, is what I hear. And I'm wrong to do it or, you know, it's not good for me. But, they but don't what do you smoking. do, Dr. Clyde? I'm going to interrupt you because what do you do when you're sitting there and your doctor is fat? I mean, uh, what is the responsibility both personally and professionally? <laughs> well, doctors? that's true. I, I, go to, I don't go to that many doctors, but all three of them that I do go to, they're all, oh, I'm not overweight. I'm five feet tall, 105 pounds, the doctors that I go to are all overweight. And everyone in there, three-quarters of the people in their offices, I would say, and, you know, this is just anecdotal, but are morbidly obese. I they agree that a lot of doctors profession. are that way. You know, and I, it's just, they don't take care of themselves, um, which is kind of ridiculous if you're telling other people what to do. Exactly. I mean, I go to the gym a few times a week, and my patients don't look at me and don't realize how older I am, but... Exercising and watching what you do eat is very important for your your health. Um, and I do not have much respect for doctors who smoke. There's a cardiologist in town who I caught smoking in, in his car, and here he is. He's telling people not to smoke and not to you know, do what he does. And that's how could you have? How could a person be valid if he's telling you things that he does, or you see that he does things that are not good for health? So you can't you can't listen to all the things that they're doing because it's if you see them breaking the rules and not having a good lifestyle, um, it's hard to believe in somebody. 
do you think there is there a lot of money in 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 obesity for instance i like if type 2 diabetes for instance which is you know on the rise obviously because of people who are overweight or obese um, is there so much money tied it up into it in terms of the medical profession that you know maybe there isn't anything in it for physicians to do anything about it except treat you know you treat all these people with with uh, these illnesses that are a result of overweight or obesity um, you know uh, it's it's not in your best interest do you, do you think is that the underlying reason? Um, no, I don't think so. I just think that people are not compliant. Uh, unfortunately, um, obese people, smokers, um, they don't want to give up these these comforts, uh, these creature comforts, and. I was in practice one week when I first went into practice, and this gentleman is leaving, and the wife said, well, what did the doctor say? And he said the usual, don't smoke, exercise, and lose weight. That was the last time I told people don't smoke. And, you know, I always, with a new patient, I'll always say, I know you've been on a 1,000 diets, and if there's something that I could help you with, I will. But they don't have... They don't have that life's crisis where they are so stimulated that they have to lose weight. And it's been shown that people have heart attacks. They start exercising and going on a diet. A year later, they go back into the same rut that they were in before. Um, it's human nature, and it's hard to crack that code. I wish I knew how. It's just that they have I to... I thought you were going to give us the answer this morning. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I wish I had an answer. I even mentioned that in the book, that... If I only knew how to get to people, there's only a little envelope of time in their life when you could reach them, when something bad happens to them or some loved one. Um, it's, it's very, I think, education, education, and education. Those ads where these funky-looking people were smoking cigarettes and coughing, um, I don't know what kind, of, uh, what kind of results they get, but scaring people. I mean, you look on a pack of cigarettes and it says that this is harmful to your health. And now they want to make it a larger word saying that it's harmful to your health. Um, they shouldn't, they should tax cigarettes to the nth degree. And, you know, and a lot of people, the soda industry was just uh, fighting the government from raising uh, a tax on soda and things that are so sugary that are bad for you. And in fact, uh, forbidding people who are on food stamps from buying them with food stamps. Um, that's one approach. Now, I don't mean that the government should be a down your throat, but if we all realize that it's a giant cost to society, it, to you and I who have health insurance and have to pay a lot of money for health insurance, which has to cover those people who um, are morbidly fat and smokers. Uh, it, you know, somebody smacks their head on a motorcycle and they're not wearing a helmet. You and I pay for that because, well, the gentleman will say, I have insurance that pays for that. But our insurance rates go up because of the, well, for many reasons, greed and profit is one of them, yeah. um, which is a good topic to talk about. What about, that is a good topic, and this is kind of related to it, but what about health, what about incentives, health insurance, premiums, incentives for people who are the right weight, for instance, uh, people who stay within the recommended weight for your age and... Um, no, I have very little hope with insurance companies. Um, 
I believe in the book I talk about uh, women were being charged twice as much as men for health insurance because they're women. Uh, they've done away with that in New York State, but it exists in other parts of the world of, of the country. I do not. And why like is that? Why uh, you do explain that in a book? But let's tell the audience why were why I mean we get. I'm not surprised, but uh, why were do, are well we, the actuarials were saying yeah. first they used to do that to uh, African Americans. They used to charge a lot more money, uh, and that was just to make a lot more money. Uh, they did it with women because they say that women um, get sicker more often than men. Uh, I don't know whether that's true or not, but they were getting away with single women were being charged twice as much. And it all depended. Some insurance companies charged 15% more, some 50% more, uh, and some 100% more. And it's kind of willy-nilly. Um, I do have my issues with insurance companies. Um, you know, for every dollar that we spend on health health insurance, 30% of it goes to administrative cost. And there are 1,500 insurance companies in the United States, each making 30% of what we pay. That goes towards administrative costs. Uh, the CEO gets a couple of million dollars a year in bonus. And in fact, the CEO of United got a $30 million bonus. Now, his staff gets paid. Now, you take something like Medicare, only 5% of the amount of money paid to Medicare goes to administration. The rest of it, 95%, goes for health care. You Absolutely. should repeat that statistic. I think that's really, really key, and I don't think that many people realize that. So health insurance companies, health is really the wrong maybe term. It's a business. They're in it, it not for health, but for money. They are directly in between you and, health, and, your, and your doctor. They tell us what to do. They make a profit on us doing less testing. So for a while there were companies um, that were sending patients to doctors who did less testing uh, and who cost them less, um, encouraging patients to go to them, not because they were better doctors, but because they were saving them money. Now, I have a nurse that all she does all day long is call insurance companies to get permission for a patient to get a CAT scan or stress test or an MRI. And oftentimes, they are refused permission. Now, Doctors that refuse to allow us to do testing, a lot of these companies give them bonuses if they um, financially save X amount of money. Um, I applied for a job not because I wanted it, but to, to see what the bonus was for. And I was told that if you, you know, deny X amount of cases, you will get a giant bonus, uh, 20% of your salary. Um, and I recorded that whole conversation, so I, I mentioned it in the book, so I, I would have uh, legally be able to talk about it. So, and, and we don't have the best healthcare in the world. We have some of the best doctors in, in the world, but you and I are not one of that 1% that can afford to see these doctors. Very wealthy people come from all over the world to see our specialists who don't take insurance, uh, and you have to pay a premium to see them. Um, there's, there's about only about 200 hospitals throughout the United States that are well known for certain illnesses and who have the best doctors. These see, patients, that statistic is really important. I and mean, I read that over and over again when I was reading your book because people will always say, well, we have the best health care system in the world because people from other countries, when they get really sick, they come here. So why do you say that we aren't number one? I mean, that's kind of the, the mantra. But you pointed out, and I think that 
only five, only hospitals that provide that kind of care are five percent of the hospitals in this exactly. country. And yeah, so that's where they're coming to. They're not coming to your local hospital or community hospital or the ones hospital. that we all go to. And the care in many of these hospitals uh, are where most of the patients who are harmed by doctors uh, occurs. Um, if you go to, I guess it's 250 hospitals throughout the country, if you go to these five-star hospitals, um, the chances of something happening to you are about 75% less than if you go to your local hospital. So, but we can't always go to the hospitals. Of, and there's only one in New York, a Columbia Presbyterian. But I've had patients hurt at Columbia as well. Um, <clears throat> we are rated by the World Health Organization as 37th in the world. There are 37, 36 hospitals, I'm sorry, 36 countries where the health care is better. And believe it or not, Eastern European countries such as Czechoslovakia, Hungary, um, they have a better health care delivery system. Uh, their, pay, their seniors live longer than ours do. All of their children uh, get uh, all the injections that they're supposed to get, and therefore they have a lower morbidity and mortality rate than our children do. And outcomes for major illnesses are probably as good, if not better, than in the United States. Uh, and then we have the burden of 50 million Americans who cannot afford health insurance. You know, we're the only country in the world where you can go bankrupt because you don't have proper health insurance. Bankrupt, that means that if one million people go bankrupt every year, their family is average three. Three million people go bankrupt. And that's a shame. We have a lot of people without health insurance, with a lot of, a lot of people who can't afford it. Um, it's very expensive for health insurance, especially now it's going every year I pay for my, my staff. It goes up about 20% a year. And <clears throat> I just read in the paper in the New York Times yesterday, the day before, that United Healthcare is making over a billion dollars, which, you know, that's our money. And it should be going to health care, and a third of it lines their pockets. We're going to end on that, not end, we're just going to end this segment on, segment on that, that comment. Uh, uh, Dr. Richard Klein and I will be back. We have lots more to talk about. And I want to talk about, uh, focus some on this uh, women in medicine as well. Uh, Surviving Your Doctors is the title of his new book, Why the Medical System is Dangerous to Your Health and How to Get Through It Alive. That's what we're talking about this morning on the Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. 
Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and The Growth Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time right here on the bottom line in business talk voice america business if you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest you'll want to make the golf realty network your weekly stop hosted by jane and al anderson the golf realty network is all about living where you play on the golf side you'll hear from the course pros and vendors while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home tune in to the golf realty network wednesdays at 8 a.m pacific 11 a.m eastern on voice america variety and rebroadcast weekly on voice america sports now there's a new destination for video content voiceamerica.tv just like our radio channels and so much more voice america variety health and wellness business sports green talk power up motorsports and seventh wave network now have their own video channel components plus check out exclusive programming including movies music educational courses science and history current events and short features high definition premier quality programs available 24 7 voiceamerica.tv if you think you've seen online tv like this before let us support you. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You are listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And if you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. Richard Klein, author of Surviving Your Doctors, Why the Medical System is Dangerous to Your Health and How to Get Through It Alive. Um, Dr. Klein is a practicing physician, associate professor of medicine, and teaches at New York Medical College. Uh, Dr. Klein, okay, I want to talk... There's so many topics that you go through in your book. Um, also, I'd, before we begin, um, before I ask you uh, my first question, uh, the book can be bought online, bookstores everywhere, Amazon.com. And I want to know, is there a website that listeners can go to for more information about the book or about what you and I have been oh, yes. talking uh, about you this could, morning? You could go to my uh, personal website, which is uh, Richard S. Klein. K-L-E-I-N dot com, richardsklein.com, uh, and you'll get to meet me and my family as well as uh, more information about this book and one that I previously wrote. Well, I'm a social worker. I should have asked you about your family in the beginning. Uh, you, you did mention children. How old are they and how many do you have? Uh, well, I had four and one passed away. So I have three children ranging in age from five years old to 43 years old. Five um, to 43? Uh, well, yes. Uh, uh, I am very relatively young. I keep myself in good shape, and I have a relatively young wife. And we had a child four, five years ago, and Matthew is uh, just started kindergarten. Um, he is in just got his white belt in karate, oh my. and I became his uh, coach for soccer. But every time I go to a soccer game, he doesn't want to play. So we're going to have to choose another sport for him. Or another coach. <laughs> another coach, perhaps. Uh, well, we Let do him have do an the assistant soccer, coach. And you can coach another team. 
Yeah, well, I never did it for any of my children before. I thought it would be cool at least to to have one child being uh, be a coach for one child. But when we do, uh, we split up the five year olds. Uh, there's an assistant coach who I asked to have uh, him on her team, uh, but still he'll play for two minutes and then say he's tired. He's but he it. loves his karate. I can see that. Well, you are. You do practice what you preach. You're in good health. You're. Are you? You work at it, and uh, you're doing the same for your youngest. Um, well, speaking, you know, you you have your son is what five years old? You said yes. All right. Let's talk about because this it doesn't apply to him now, but it will in a few years, or it could. And I had this conversation with my boyfriend of 22 years. Uh, and he was asking me because we saw an advertisement on television and about. Uh, this new drug or this antiviral medication called Gardasil. This is a big controversial. Yeah, I, um, I have uh, a lot of feeling about that as well. Um, you know, in Texas, they made it. They try to make it mandatory. Um, it's a there's a so small select population that are exposed to um, possibly getting cancer. Uh, cervical cancer, and in the New York Times today, they talk about a small percentage of the population who um, may get anal or throat cancer, and those are homosexuals. Um, it seems to me that the whole world should not be uh, immunized against a disease that only affects a small per- percent of the population. Um, furthermore, the Gardasil only takes care of a certain strain of um, of the HPV virus. There are many strains, and only a few are selected out. And uh, sexually active children, I hate to say it that way, but sexually active uh, teens um, are more prone to getting uh, disease later on in life. But everybody is exposed to um, this virus, um, all the different strains of it. We all are exposed to it uh, in, as once you start being sexually active. So, so yeah, maybe explain that more clearly to people because I don't think that they understand. You know, we're, uh, this, we may have started out a little bit too technical. Uh, th- what is the history behind the HPV, um, uh, the human papilloma virus? What is it? Who you know? You, you mentioned. I mean, I know that women, sexually active women, um, often young women. Older women, women in general who are sexually active, often get the virus. Yes. Now, what happens is it's they get it in the beginning period. of their sexuality. It's passed from one person to the next, and after um, a certain age, let's say twenty-one, uh, it disappears from from the human being's body, uh, and therefore doesn't cause any problem at all. Uh, in some people, it remains and uh, can go on to cause uh, disease. Um, but the percentage is so small, and I'm, I'm not turning down the fact that 3,000 women uh, die of uh, cervical cancer a year. Um, and had they been protected, it, my feeling is rather than giving a vaccine, um, have better uh, observation and continue doing pap tests every year, um, and not, as has been suggested recently, not to give it. Because there are many strains of this virus, as I said before, uh, that um, don't uh, that the vaccine doesn't protect you from, and we don't know how long you are protected from the vaccine. Uh, those people that are um, prone to getting diseases afterwards, such as homosexual boys, um, 
and young women who uh, could... Once you become sexually active, the vaccine is not going to work. And I don't see vaccinating a whole, the whole world to prevent a small amount of diseases. We, had, we came, they came out with a virus, uh, with the vaccine, and we were told that it's harmless and it'll do everybody good. Children have died from the vaccine, and other children have gotten very sick and because of the vaccine. So, um, you know, is this an the, example of health, of, of the uh, pharmaceutical companies uh-huh. and or the medical system at its worst? I mean, I, where did this? I, my my question was, where did this all come from? I mean, I, you know, I'm probably a similar age as you, and I know lots of women who have had the the virus and it goes away, and it's it's never. And if you get regular Pap smears, you can detect whether or not you know you can protect yourself uh, against cervical cancer and. Um, Better Is this coming from the boardroom? We have to, you know, they take they took a HRT hormone replacement therapy, which was a what billions of dollars a year off the market. So now they have to make more. This may be very simplistic, Doctor Klein, but do they took that off the market? So now they have to make more money on a new kind of drug for, for you know, women. Every, I believe that this is all for profit of the pharmaceutical house. When they came out with the vaccine about five years ago. Um, it was touted as the best thing ever, and all these politicians were saying how great it was. And then all of a sudden we started reading um, in the newspapers that people were getting hurt from it, uh, and it wasn't the best thing in the world. If you go online, I always encourage my patients, please go online and look at the Google the HPV vaccine. They have a, The first hundred hits are going to be by the people who make the drug. <coughs> who does make Excuse the drug? Um, Which pharmaceutical company makes the drug? Not that it matters, I guess, but... Yeah, I'm blocking it right now, but I'm going to look it up online. But you'll find uh, that uh, about 100 hits came up by the pharmaceutical company, and and, uh, it's hard to get true information about what, you know, what it is. Um, However... um, it, when we have uh, other vaccines as well that are that come out and they're not as good as they're told to be, for example, the one for um, herpes shingles, um, the vaccine for shingles. That we was don't my know. next question. <laughs> uh, well, you know, do we have to? Um, how many people get shingles in, in their adulthood? And um, how many do? Can I tell you how many girlfriends have called me up and said, "Are you getting the shingles?" But because you should be getting it. I, I'm a, well, why? Can you tell me? They can't exactly tell me why or how many people get it or how many women get it or what the age demographics. I mean, I can look it up as well. So, But tell us, how many people do get shingles every year? Uh, well, I don't know that, but I do know that uh, if one out of 150 people uh, who are seniors get it, um, then that's not a heck of a lot. And most people don't have it severe. And by the way, if you feel some of the symptoms, uh, it takes about three days for the symptoms to come out before you develop a rash. And that can, you could prevent that rash if you take an antiviral medication. So some of the symptoms are the same as if you get a cold sore on your lip. You start feeling a burning and funny sensation for a couple of three days before it comes out. If you get those symptoms on any part of your body, we can give you a drug that will prevent you from getting the disease at all. 
By the way, that, uh, something Gardasil that, is that was made in by your Merck. book. I, I think that is such a good point. I, 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 had, I did not know that, and no one has ever said that. Either a doctor or anybody else who I've talked to about this has said, well, you know, you, can, you have a window of opportunity to oh, yeah. get, yeah. And, but doesn't this, isn't this our mentality? We just, it, the physicians and pharmacists and our whole medical community, the first thing is we need to drug people. I mean, drugs, drug, farm. I mean, I have refused so many medications from my physicians over the years, and I'm so glad that I have. Uh, yes, when you need it, fine. But when I'm always skeptical of a lot of this medication that they prescribe on mass to the whole population. You know, I'll bet you if you ask your doctor, do I really need that medication? Fifty uh, percent of the time, they'll say no. Um, we give a lot of antibiotics to kids and to adults because they've been waiting in your waiting room for an hour, and um, they expect to get something for the disease that they have. Uh, otherwise, why see the doctor? And a lot of times doctors give the medicine just to please the, uh, the patient uh, when, in fact, a lot of this medication does harm to people. Uh, if you have a cold, you're not going to be getting better with an antibiotic. And if anything, it's going to take the bacteria that are in your system and make them resistant to that antibiotic. Um, so I'll bet if you ask your physician, um, he or she will say you probably don't need it 50% of the time. Um, and I mentioned that Merck is the uh, manufacturer of Gardasil. Okay, Merck. Uh, Merck. There Write the that down, folks. <laughs> Um, well, here's, I'm going to give you a little, I mean, you have a lot of great uh, stories in the book, and I'm going to tell you one of my stories, which I, I haven't been able to figure out. Uh, uh, this is at, um, at, at my internist, and uh, the big push now is to take vitamin D, I guess. I see this all over the place, and they want yes, to push yes. vitamin D. So they gave me some tests for vitamin D, and I, a few days later, whenever it was, I get a, a call on my answering machine, and it's the spokesperson from the doctor's office, and she said, your vitamin D t- test came back perfectly, came back normal, and she gave me the number. But if you're taking, uh, you know, vitamin D, continue to take it. If you're not, fill out the, uh, we'll send you a prescription for vitamin D. And I hung up, and I thought, as there's, uh, what is, what, I looked up my number, which was actually, actually, actually perfect in terms of what your vitamin D levels should be. And I thought, why would they tell me to take vitamin D if my if I'm fine? I mean, what is behind that? I thought it was insane, but that that has a little craziness to it. Um, we test people for the past three or four years. We've been testing people for vitamin D, and one third of the population seems to have low amounts. Now, does it cause symptoms? It can cause symptoms, um, and we encourage people who have low vitamin D levels um, to take. Uh, vitamin D3, uh, that's the only one that seems to work. Now, women who are perimenopausal, um, we ask to take calcium with vitamin D because calcium with vitamin D seems to um, decrease the uh, incidence of osteoporosis. Um, so taking it, um, but on a much lesser dose, um, vitamin D therapeutically is a 1,000 units a day for mild vitamin D deficiencies. Um, but for the average perimenopausal female, I would imagine just uh, you know 200 to 300 international units uh, to help with the prevention of uh, osteoporosis. But you don't need a prescription for vitamin D. You buy it over the counter. Uh, taken in excess is not good because it's uh, one of the vitamins that um, 
stick in our system, and ordinarily the vitamin Ds are urinated out if you have any excess, uh, but vitamin D and a couple of other vitamins, um, A and E and K, uh, stay in your system and they can be harmful to you. So taking, taking excess amounts is not healthy for you. I've had this conversation with non-medical people, and I, particularly one woman, a friend of mine who's older than I, who had been taking lots of vitamins, and this is another controversial issue, I guess. And she said, well, you know, I'm taking vitamins, but if I don't need them, they just pass out of my system and the, your body gets rid of them. So I said, yeah, yeah but your right. liver has to process them. So you've got your liver, is, you know, it doesn't just go out of your system and your body doesn't have to process it. Your liver is working overtime for something that you don't need. If you don't need it, you don't need it. Well, I'm one of the. I, I just eat well, and I don't. You know, I don't usually, take all that stuff. Usually, my experience: the people who take all these different vitamins and supplements have been in good health before they took it, and they just carry on this. Uh, I don't believe in vitamins. I think that uh, if you eat a healthy diet, um, then you don't need them. And as I said, there are four vitamins. If you take in excess, uh, they could hurt you. Uh, I remember being asked in medical school a question, uh, what happens if you eat of, uh, of the liver of a whale? And then you had to know that the liver of a whale has lots of excess of vitamin A, and that'll get you terribly sick. So not that you're going to be eating liver of a whale, but it does stay in your liver, as you just said. Um, so eating a lot of that can get you sick. Um, but we don't need all these supplements, and a lot of these supplements don't work, and patients bring in bottles all the time and ask, what do I think of this? And I said, well, it doesn't seem to have any proven medical you know, um, cures, why waste all of your money? Do you ever say to them, what are you eat? Do you sit down with them? Because most of the physicians that I know don't do this. Uh, let's sit down and talk about what you eat and the choices you make you know, and take time to really go through that with a patient and see where you're getting your vitamins or not getting your vitamins or how to get them or how to do it better. Well, you have me there. Uh, my nurse practitioner, when she takes care of patients, she's into nutrition and um, asks everybody what they eat, and I do not. Um, I, I do know that I do not favor supplements and or vitamins in general, except the calcium and my, minor amounts of vitamin D for osteoporosis. Uh, there seems not to be any other vitamin or supplement that I know of um, to help treat or prevent disease. So... Well, what do we do about this? Because I really do think that this is, you know, sort of encourages people not to make good cho or people don't make, we're not making good choices in terms of our own medical care, taking control of how we take care of ourselves, because I think there's always this, I'll go to the physician and all I need is a drug and that's going to cure me or it's going to prevent this. Or, so I really don't have to, to, to make choices or worry about, um, take responsibility for how, my lifestyle and what I do. Well, you brought up another point about taking drugs, and then there's taking drug drugs, which are painkillers. Um, usually the first week of, of, of uh, there's a need for a painkiller, but after that, there's no need. And if anything, after about a week or two of being on painkillers, one really becomes uh, addicted to it. Um, and people are more and more addicted. Uh, we read 
uh, online the other day that there was a whole bunch of people in Florida that were senior citizens getting prescriptions for like thousands of painkillers. Now, people are probably selling them. I can't imagine you taking thousands of them. But they sell uh, this medication, and we've uh, made a whole bunch of um, addicts by giving them medicine for pain and continuing to give it. Um, and we actually just had a, a nurse working for me who was stealing prescriptions and writing them out and, and giving them to friends for pain medication. So we take pain medicine, we put it in our um, in our boxes in in the kit in the in the bathrooms, and the kids are now taking medications that we were prescribed and using it for themselves, becoming addicted to these um, oxycodones and all of these pills. We don't need that amount. And then, of course, there was a pharmacy that was held up and people were were killed in Long Island, New York. Um, those prescriptions should probably be given out by specialists in, and not be held in pharmacies. They, they should something like being in a police station where people can't come in and shoot up everybody. Um, they're not safe, um, and they cause a lot of crime. A lot of pharmacies are being held up now for these prescription medications. But when it comes to the bottom line, which is, I keep getting back to that, how can the medical profession, the professionals, the physicians, the doctors, police themselves when you have a huge industry that brings in billions of dollars a year and you have the lobbyists in Washington? How does, you know, because you're the doctor, um, what can you do about that? Well, New York has a an, an interesting um, prescription law where all physicians have to write on a prescription that comes from New York State. Uh, and they are all coded, barcoded, and uh, the amount of prescriptions you write for certain drugs are tallied up in Albany or wherever else they do it uh, to keep tabs on, you know, bad usage of these uh, certain drugs, which is a great idea. Uh, I fortunately haven't been called by anybody, so I don't give a a lot of those drugs out. But we read about doctors in my area who... um, just for a fee, will write you out a prescription. Uh, you hear them, they get arrested, they uh, go on trial, but they go back to work. So there's something wrong within the system itself. Well, just looking at that from a different perspective, what about if the, the pharmaceutical companies know which doctors are prescribing which drugs? Yes, of course so they do. So do they get, here's another, would the doctors get perks? for Let's say Merck has a new drug out and they sell it with those Good-looking oh, drug reps I have, around uh, say to Dr. Smith, well, here, you know, we want you to promote this drug, and then doctors end up promoting the drugs because they get the, whatever the perks are from the drug company, and the drug company knows how many people you prescribe the drug to. That's another Well, scenario. they do, actually. Uh, colleagues of mine who uh, specialize in certain fields have been sent all over the world, uh, and they I mean, they can afford to go on their own, but they are treated uh, specially by, let's say, Merck came out with a new drug for prostate cancer. Well, the urologists are going to be the ones that are targeted, and they'll be sent uh, on these free jaunts around the world, um, which is crazy. And you pay for that, and I pay for that. Every time you buy a drug, uh, those perks are built into the amount of money that they get. What really upsets me is that we sell drugs outside of the country for a tenth of what we pay for it, and 
we go to Canada to buy these drugs back, um, not for a tenth, but, you know, for 50% less, we should... It's written in the law that that's allowed, but we're not allowed to get it cheaper in this country. Well, let's address the first thing that you just said, because in other words, you say the title of your book is Surviving Your Doctors. So the next time I go to my physician and I'm prescribed a drug that I'm a little leery about, should I ask him, are you, what kind of perks are you getting <laughs> from prescribing this drug? How many, how, you know, what... What's you know, we, we are bombarded with uh, drug representatives who come from each pharmaceutical house, um, and they tell us about the new drugs and that come out. And I said, I don't want to hear about any new drug uh, until it's been out five years, and then, you know, I think it's seven years, rather, unless it's so significantly better than anything, you know, better than sliced bread, I don't want to know about it, because... Every year, drug companies come out with new drugs so that they can keep uh, making a large profit on it, whereas old drugs that we have are just as good. Uh, I don't know of any drug that's been out on the market in the past couple of years that has changed life in any way other than making more money for pharmaceutical houses. Um, and But they keep on coming with new drugs, and, and it's just it's interesting that... Um, I don't want to hear about them unless they are the newest thing that's going to save everybody. Well, unfortunately, I think you're probably unique. Well, you're you, obviously unique in the fact that you wrote the book, Dr. Klein. We have to say goodbye. We have a minute left. But I, cause, and I, I could have to have you on the show again because there are a lot more topics that you cover in the book, but uh, listeners should, should go out and buy the book, Surviving Your Doctors, Richard S. Klein, M.D., Why the Medical System is Dangerous to Your Health, and How to Get Through It Alive. That's what we've been talking about today. Um, I really appreciate your being on the show. It was great chatting with you. Thank you very much. Actually, I enjoyed it, too, so uh, I'd like to come back. Good. Lots of good information. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You've been listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.